Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 more minutes with Mike Cole. Literary Alchemists, I'm Dave Robison, and you have tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. It's a chance for us to sit down with some of the creators out there in the world who are telling the stories that we love to read and delve into their craft, into their perceptions, into their creative mojo uh, uh, in, in a purely selfish attempt to improve our own mojo that we may join them in the ranks of the exalted and the illustrious on high. Uh, obviously, I'm flying solo today, which is an unusual situation, but uh, my usual co-host, Marie Billadell, apparently hooligans have been rampaging in her neighborhood, knocking out internet nodes and collapsing her internet. I don't understand it, but that's what happened. So we don't have any Marie Billadell, and I know you're going, oh, crap, man, that kind of sucks. And it does, but I'll do my best to, to hold my own uh, and carry the weight of the show on my shoulders. We do have have a fabulous guest host in the wings and friends <laughs> the last time we had this guest host on the RTP was back in January 2013 uh, his second book Fortress Frontier the second in the Shadow Ops series hadn't even come out yet uh, now the world and his world in particular has changed dramatically since then uh, first there are four more books with his name on them. Fortress Frontier came out, followed by Breach Zone, concluding the first trilogy of the Shadow Ops saga. Then Gemini Cell launched the second Shadow Ops trilogy, a prequel trilogy that explores the early days of the Great Awakening. Now, that was followed by the recently released Javelin Rain and will soon be concluded by Siege Line, releasing from Ace Books in March 2017. Three years, four books. Bam! Nailing it. Now, that alone is no small achievement, but there is so much more. In addition to quite literally dozens of convention appearances around the world, let's see, his short story, Weapons in the Earth, appeared in John Joseph Adams's Operation Arcana anthology from Bain Books, alongside a veritable constellation of specfic luminaries. And guys, you know how on anthologies they'll put the including stories from on the cover and then list the top five badass writers in the collection? Our guest host was on the cover. Yeah, baby. That's right. You make the cover of an anthology, you're kicking it. Uh, he's also become something of a public speaker, giving presentations at... <gasps> Drawing a deep breath, the Baltimore Science Fiction Society's Dangerous Voices Happy Hour, Word Brooklyn's Wrightcraft Lecture Series, the Twitter Fiction Festival Live, which, by the way, is available on YouTube if you want to go check that out, uh, the Colby Military Writers Symposium, and some hole-in-the-wall organization called the Library of Congress. <laughs> so, dude, and I gotta tell you, friends, I have seen him numerous times participating in or moderating panels 
panels, and I can absolutely attest to his poise and presence as a public speaker. Uh, He recently announced, and this is awesome, he's writing a three-book series that's been picked up by Tor.com. Not military fantasy, but rather a grimdark medieval fantasy series featuring a young gay female protagonist. Now, Mark Lawrence has already read it, lucky bastard, and has raved, so it's safe to say fans are in for a treat. He's also pitched a non-fiction book about ancient military history that is currently in contract negotiations with a prestigious publisher of military texts. And his website recently got a very sexy upgrade. And I know, whoa, big deal, Dave. His website got an upgrade. Who gives a shit? Uh, It's worth checking out, if only because he got to add a link on the navigation bar that not a lot of people can. The link reads... TV appearances. (laughs) CBS has a new reality TV show where people become fugitives hunted by a team of, and I quote, highly skilled law enforcement experts who combine traditional tactics with state-of-the-art methods. It's called Hunters. It airs on CBS this month. And our guest host is a part of that team, filling the role of cyber analyst. Now, friends, with all that awesomeness, you'd think we'd be gearing up for a fun episode, right? Well, forget it. According to our guest host, he is not fun. Read his recently reposted blog post, Food is Fuel, and you will discover that he is the exact opposite of fun. Of course, you'll be laughing your ass off about four paragraphs in, so that raises the question, is our guest host completely full of shit? What is the deal? (laughs) The deal, friends, is that you haven't met anyone like this individual. There's a reason why his favorite D&D characters are paladins. Passion, respect, and honor stand tall in his personal paradigm, fueled by relentless honesty and personal integrity. That, combined with a sense of humor as dry as leaves in winter, make our guest host an utterly unique experience, someone you want to meet, someone you're glad to know, and someone who is, despite his protests to the contrary, a great deal of fun. Dear friends, please welcome back to the Roundtable Podcast Virtual Studio, Mike Cole. Mike, dude! Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I'm laughing for you. Forget me. That was amazing. I wish, you know, I, I hope my mom listens to this. Like, this is, you know, you know, the people people like have living uh, living living allergies, like living funerals, so they can have someone sort of eulogize their life. <laughs> and uh, I, I always thought that that was kind of you know well, you know over the top. And I, I've decided I've changed my mind. It's too ego to sit there and have somebody say these wonderful things about you. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's just incredible. The only thing I want to correct is it's, the show is hunted. Not hunters. Oh, my apologies. Uh, I'll make no, that. no problem, no problem at all. And let me m- uh, remind listeners that that is premiering on January twenty second at ten p.m. on East Coast time, right after the AFC Championship game. Wow! Talk about a perfect follow up spot. Holy crap! Thank you. So, well, there. I, I think CBS is angling it to sort of take over Survivor's old spot, and when you consider that Survivor debuted to an audience of twenty five million. And I think at its low point, had an average viewership of around 11 million. 
I'm uh, to say I'm shitting a brick is uh, <laughs> an understatement. Mike, holy crap! How and, and I'm sure you know you've been interviewed a dozen times. How did this freaking happen? Not that I don't think it's absolutely freaking brilliant to have you as the cyber analyst of this elite team, but but how did this come to pass? Because I think, look, I I sell myself when I interact online from my nerd credentials, right? Because sure. This is, what, this is what I love, and I want to connect with other nerds online. And people know that I've been in the military, and some people know I was in the intelligence services. But what people, most people don't know is that a huge part of my intelligence career was spent in what's called counterterrorism targeting, which is a very fancy way of saying I track down terrorists. So I have this sort of long, long background as a manhunter. And I think like the two main um, sub-disciplines of manhunting in, in the modern world are counterterrorism targeting, and uh, fugitive recovery, uh, which is sort of the law enforcement police side of it, whereas counterterrorism would be the military and uh, intelligence side of it. Now, I don't want to oversell this. There are thousands of competent and great uh, military and intelligence targets around the world. Um, I, I'm nobody special, or at least I didn't think I was anybody special. But as um, CBS and Endemol Shine, which is the production company that did the show, started digging around for their A-team, you know, I guess my reputation was out there and friends of mine and colleagues of mine in the field had said, hey, man, this guy's really good. And then, of course, some of it's TV. You know, I guess I have the right look. You know, maybe it's the tattoos that they wanted somebody. If you've ever seen um, uh, NCIS, they have that, uh, like, one goofy cyber lady. With oh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Spike. Absolutely. Right. Abby. Abby. Right. right. So I guess maybe that's what they were looking for since everybody else on the show has a suit. But um, I literally got this phone call out of the blue while I was at a publishing holiday party. And I think my first words to the person on the other end were, fuck you. <laughs> like, I, did, I didn't believe it. I, what, do you, what do you say? What do you say when you're a lifelong nerd, right? And someone calls you on the phone. They're like, hey, we want you to be on TV. You're like, get out of here. You're like, get out of town. Thankfully, they, they uh, were not offended. And they understood because I guess everybody says that. And... And honestly, Dave, I didn't believe it was real. I did the Skype interview after Skype interview, and I just, in publishing, you get used to people saying, oh, this is so great, this is going to be a big deal, and then nothing happens, right? Right. Um, and you get used to that. So you don't, so when people are telling you that this, uh, you're going to be on this big TV show, but then I'll never forget that one day I got a phone call, and they were like, hey, we're flying you to LA, and you're going to meet the president of CBS, you're going to interview with the president of CBS to be on the show. And I thought, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> you know I'll believe the president of CBS isn't going to want to meet me, right? And, uh, nope, next thing I know, there's a plane ticket. There's a plane uh, ticket in your, in your mailbox. <laughs> right. That's when, and that's when, like, my stomach dropped and I was like, oh, oh, shit, <laughs> this is actually happening. So, yeah, I'm, Dave, nobody is more surprised than I am. That, that it came to this, but I'm hopeful that uh, this will open doors for me and this will be a cool thing. And even if it doesn't, it's a really good show. Oh, I can say man. that. It sounds awesome. It sounds brilliant. And and if nothing else, you know, I I usually put in the in the posts for for these episodes, I usually put like the books that the author has written and, and links to Amazon and blah blah blah. I'm totally putting the trailer for for Hunted uh, in in the liner notes for this thing because you look badass. You got oh, the whole thanks. arms arms crossed, the beard, the tattoo displayed <laughs> proudly, and everybody else is all suit and tie and you know or Euro and Mike's down there saying yeah bring it motherfuckers i got you it was it was a 
look, I'll say this. You know, people think reality TV, and I think the, the shows that come to mind are Jersey Shore and Real Housewives and these sort of catty shows that, that focus on interpersonal relationships. Um, and I would not have gone on a show like that. This is not that show. Right. Uh, one of the things that I'm really, really excited about is this is the real deal. Like, you're going to get to see how manhunting gets done. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, I will say, full disclosure, I haven't seen the show. When it premieres, the, the first time people watch it on the premiere night will be the first time I watch it. So no privileges um, but, for actually being in the show, right? <laughs> right, right. So I don't get any pre-viewing, you know, pre but I will say that in the process of making it, I actually, I haven't, I think this is sort of going to be a new level in TV because it's going to be a reality TV show along the lines of, um, you know, Dirty Jobs or um, Top Gear or uh, shows that shows that shows where people are really bringing something to the table. Uh, And not just with us, the hunters, but the fugitives are fascinating people. (laughs) I'm really, really excited for you, for people to get a chance to see them. Well, and on on a personal level, I mean, anybody who's a fan of you, Mike, we we know your background. We know you were a spy for crying out loud. We know that you've you you've made no bones about your your heritage in the military and your work in, in cyber intelligence. So this is going to be a chance for us to see you do your shit, man. <laughs> I'm yeah. looking forward to it. <laughs> well, I hope you and you're going to love the other people too. I mean, uh, Teresa Payton, who is my boss uh, on the show, used to be the. The, the CIO for the White House and runs this incredibly like ninja private cybersecurity firm. One of the heads of ops, Andy Stumpf, um, was a, a SEAL. I think he has like five brown stars with combat Vs. And he set the world flight record uh, in a wingsuit, like oh, distance record, basically free flying in a wingsuit. It's Holy amazing, crap. amazing. And these are the kinds of people you're dealing with uh, on the show. You'll, you'll see when. Uh, when, when things get off. But everybody, look, the selection process is pretty rigorous and everybody who was chosen for that show was chosen because they're the best at what they do. And it was go. just, I'm just, I can't wait for you to see everybody. Uh, I'm pumped. Very pumped. Very pumped. Not that this has anything to do with writing, but holy crap, we had to spooge for just a little <laughs> bit on that. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Friends, tune in to Hunted uh, on January, what is it again? 27th? 22nd, right after the AFC Championship game. Uh, that will be 10 p.m. East Coast time. I'm not sure uh, how it's scheduled uh, other time zones. No worries. Check your local listings, friends. Uh, make that scene. Very cool. Very cool. All right. <laughs> we, we, we've nerded enough <laughs> about that. Let's let's dive into some, some writerly questions. I'm going to start the, the clock, uh, which even though it's just me and Mike, I'm pretty sure we're going to ignore, and start our 20 minutes with Mike Cole. Uh, Mike, uh, obviously I did a little more stalking. I had to, to, just to catch up on your life over the last three years, and it's been fabulous. I was, uh, uh, you had done an interview with Matt Staggs uh, uh, for Unbound Worlds uh, in October of this year. And uh, one of the, it was a great interview, but one of the topics uh, that you discussed was um, fans, some of your fans being disappointed in the character development of Oscar Britton in the original Control Point series, that you presented him not as the heroic badass, uh, uh, that, you know, the stereotypical military fiction would portray, but someone who was flailing and floundering his way through a new situation, which was very authentic. Uh, uh, And to that, you said, I achieved what I set out to do artistically, but I never want to do that at the cost of losing readers. And that raised a question in my mind. Um, how, How do you rank 
artistic integrity against the expectations of your readers, if that makes sense. Um, you see, the, the problem with the, the question, though, is that that presents it as a zero-sum game. I would argue that um, when you're doing it right, you are able to seamlessly integrate artistic integrity with reader expectations. Look, in the end, um, I'm, not in, I'm not interested in creating experimental art, right? Uh, I'm not interested in, um, I, and, and don't get me wrong, I think experimental art is important. Was it? I can't remember who did that. Piss Christ. Was that um, Maplethorpe or uh, uh, a very controversial? I know the piece you're talking about. I don't think it was Maplethorpe, but I know the piece you're talking about. Okay, so so for example, like when I look at that from a straight up, um, uh, how do I say this? Practical artistic. Uh, Prag- a pragmatic I, artistic. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't generate. I don't derive a lot of aesthetic pleasure from viewing that image. Um, but I also think that that image is very important because as a, as a piece of experimental art, it challenged a lot of assumptions. It raised a lot of controversy. It, it started a lot of conversations that needed to be had. Um, and that is one of the most important things art can do. So I was very pleased that that controversy happened, even as, as I was unhappy that people were getting their feathers ruffled as a guy who's studied Christianity his whole life and, and uh, has a great deal of respect for the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so experimental art has its place, but I am not an experimental artist, and I am not generating art to raise eyebrows and create controversy. I am attempting to serve a dramatic narrative to try to evoke the same experiences that gave me resonance and pleasure when I was reading novels, and still am reading novels. I make it sound like I stopped reading. But you, you know what I'm talking about. Sure. You know, you know how you felt when you first discovered Tolkien. You know how you felt when you um, finish the, the three-book arc of um, Drizdor and uh, R.S. Salvatore's books, you know, the Underdark trilogy, uh, Sojourn in Exile. Do you know how you felt with the um, tripod books? And, uh, you know, oh, jeez, yes. <laughs> right, right, you remember that. Like, yep. And the fact that you're laughing like that and, and like I can f- hear the warmth in your voice, that's what I'm trying to create for other people. Um, and... When you're not creating experimental art, there are narrative expectations and narrative arcs that have to be met to evoke that. Um, and I would argue that that when you're succeeding in something artistically, but you are otherwise failing to meet those expectations for how characters mature in art, art that's an example of doing it wrong. If, I, if my goal in Control Point had been to challenge preconceived notions of you know, what military people are like and what what a protagonist should be, then great, sure, I succeeded. Um, And I guess partially that was one of the things I set out to do, but my overarching goal is to have people put that book down and go, holy shit, man, this is amazing. That's really it. (laughs) And and like those hours flew by and I feel better about life in the world and I, my brain is firing off with different ideas and stories and inspirations that are connected to this. And if that character, if the dissonance created by that character prevents that payoff from occurring that I failed. I absolutely have failed. So given given the the disappointment articulated by again some of your fans and then for those that haven't read the Control Point books, the Shadow Ops books, this is I hope this is an enticement to dive in and experience them for yourself. I'm I'm referencing a very small percentage, but but Mike's dedication and commitment to his fans is so great that even a small percentage is is appears on his radar. 
do you feel that you failed to those people? I guess, and I don't want to belabor the point, but the notion of experimental art, for example, I don't know that the guy who did the, you know, if, if Maplethorpe or if somebody set out to create experimental art, I think that's kind of, that, that controversial stuff comes out from the reader views, from the audience's response, from the critical assessment of the piece. I'm not sure necessarily that the artist set out to to challenge uh, uh, convention and I'm like... I'm not no, you're to... exactly right. You're, okay. you're, no, you're articulating it perfectly. So, so this is something I say all the time. You produce a manuscript, you write a book, and then your role in the process is done. You cannot control what your audience takes away from it, right? Right. Um, they are, you know, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to them. There's no way to read a work wrong. Uh, but I will say this. Interpretation of the work is the responsibility of the reader. So if a reader uh, reads a Mike Cole book and says, um, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, this tells me that Mike Cole is anti-government, right? <laughs> um, that's, on, that's on you, you know, that you made that conclusion. Now, you can ask me what I meant, but your takeaway from that, that this is an anti-government text, that's entirely your responsibility as the reader and the interpreter. You're not wrong, because it, you can't be wrong in such a subjective equation. Uh, this is what you got from it, but you're still responsible for it. That's that's a super important um, distinction to make. I so, agree. right. So, but but here's the thing: is yeah, you said it exactly right. I'm not Emily Dickinson, Dave. I I don't <laughs> write to satisfy myself. I don't write to look back at a completed project and sort of think, you know, I have answered my muse. I have you know struck a, a chord in the lyre of the universe or whatever. I write so that other people will read it. I want to generate emotions, preferably positive ones, and I want feedback from that process. I write to communicate. So when that feedback, even a small percentage of it, is saying, hey, this main character did not meet my expectations or disappointed me or whatever, yeah, I take that to heart. And uh, it, it, uh, it does feel uh, in some ways like, yes, like I did fail. I failed to provide the uh, experience and resonance that I wanted for everybody. And Control Point has been a very successful novel by any possible measure. But another thing that you'll that people probably know about me is that I'm never satisfied. And <laughs> it, can, it can always be more successful. And uh, so, and you'll see this in the development of characters throughout all five of my published books. Is you can see me adjusting fire based on how those characters are resonating with the audience. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Mike Cole after this brief promotional break. Fifty years ago, Mira, humankind's last hope to find new resources, departed the solar system. Seven years into her mission, she disappeared. Now, she has returned. SNR Black, a Seoul Federation Marine Corps vessel, is sent to retrieve her from certain destruction in the Kuiper Belt beyond Pluto. What they find will change humankind forever. From Parsec Award-winning author Paul E. Cooley, Derelict Marines, part one of the Derelict Saga, combines military sci-fi, space opera, mystery, and suspense to create a journey you won't forget. Podcast available at Shadow Publications and iTunes in December 2016. Some mysteries shouldn't be solved. 
Now, let's get back to the conversation with Mike Cole. So you're actually, as you develop your stories, you're keeping track of the, the, the general feedback, the general responses and making adjustments and tweaks as, as the, the next book is being written? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say, I mean, the way you say it makes it sound like I'm like keeping, I have my reviews up on a report <laughs> over my <laughs> Yeah, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to like, imply that. Like no, that. No, 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 no. No, no, it's, it's not like that at all. Um, but it's more like subconsciously, I think, look, um, any writer who says that they detach themselves from their work uh, and that who they are and what they're feeling is not somehow coming out in their art. Um, this is why people say, you know, I, I didn't set out to write a political whatever. And then people respond, well, all art is political. And this is, and I agree. And this is because, you know, maybe there are artists who exist who can keep themselves out of their work. I haven't met any, and I'm not one. So as, so what happens? Control Point comes out. It's my first novel. I read these reviews. I see this feedback. And there's enough. Here's the thing. If it was one person saying that, it would be easier to dismiss. But when five, ten, whatever people are saying that, even if it's not the majority of the people, that's enough to create a splinter in my mind. And that splinter in my mind works on me <laughs> while I'm creating future characters. So, yeah, I wouldn't say I consciously adjust fire, but um, uh, look, you look at the character of Alan Bookbinder, look at the character of Jan Thorsten Harlequin and Breedstone, look at the character of Jim Schweitzer, compare yep. those people to Oscar Britton. Even look at Oscar Britton as he is first as the main character in Control Point and then as a supporting character, first in Fortress Frontier and then in Breedstone. And you can't tell me that you don't see those changes occurring. Right. And I think that, you know, another writer may just say this is the process of your craft maturing. But uh, at least this is your internal lens on what it feels like from where I'm sitting. Cool. Awesome. No, that <laughs> and, and this this is this is a conversation that, that has been going on for ages and will continue. Uh, so I, I will I will leave this point made and, and let it rest for now. But per, perhaps if we if we cross paths at a con at some point in time, we might take it up again. <laughs> but um, let me let me uh, another thing that I, I noticed as I was I was reviewing your your curriculum vitae. Uh, uh, was the, the there's always the question you know what what's your what's your advice for new writers uh, uh, and friends if you ask Mike Cole this question you will get the following do the fucking work done right is always better than done fast and uh, he's a strong advocate of critical reading um, and I think that pretty much sums up your your philosophy of of advice for young writers yes yes although. What's interesting now, um, I think I'm becoming more sympathetic. Do the fucking work never changes, right? No, sir. Um, but have you, did you see Doug Hewlett's string of tweets uh, where he admitted to the public that he did cancel his contract? You know Doug Hewlett, right? I do not. Oh, okay, so Doug Hewlett um, is a writer for Ace Rock. Uh, he's, uh, his the Tales of the Kin uh, series was pretty popular, direct hmm. to mass market fantasy, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he, um, he wrote one book, he delivered the second book a little bit late, and then the third book was year upon year of not being delivered. And finally, two days ago, he did a 32-tweet string where he basically said, he didn't blame his publisher, he didn't blame anybody else, but he said that he felt like um, every time he sat down to write, he didn't want to do it, it wasn't good enough, and that the anxiety over not writing when he tried to give himself a little bit of distance was so great that it was impacting all aspects of his life. And he finally, you know, he just couldn't recover from it and that uh, wound up canceling uh, the contract uh, agreed between him and, and the publisher and the third book will not be coming out. Mm. And 
And of course, every writer who read that, right? <laughs> we all, I, I can promise you that every professional writer who read that string of tweets had two reactions. The first reaction was one of intense sympathy, right? Sure. And feeling, oh, you know, because Doug's a great guy. And the second was, oh my God, I know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> sympathy um, and empathy, back to back. And, and terror, right? And, sure. and this feeling of like, holy shit, what, you know, what if something like that happens to me? And the reason that, the reason that I say that is that I feel exactly the same way all the time. I'm working on, uh, the working title is The Queen of Crows, which is the, the sequel to The Fractured Girl, which is the working title for the first and second novels that will be coming from Tor.com. And I'm about halfway through a first draft. Now keep in mind that I've published five novels. I have another novel handed in and accepted. I have this history book and contract negotiation. I have these other books already purchased. So I'm not a newbie. And yet, as I sit down to write The Queen of Crows, I'm incredibly distracted. I have a really hard time focusing. I have I find myself making excuses. And then when I do write, I find myself producing utter shit, which I, I, I'm embarrassed to look at. And then all of that is followed by the terror. What if I can't turn it on time? What if I turn it on time and it sucks and they reject it? So the experience that Doug is, is describing in his tweets um, is, I, I just want to say to, the, to your audience, is universal. None of my advice to new writers has changed. You have to do the work. You have to um, read critically, uh, like a boxer watching a fight video. Um, you have to accept the, in the Coast Guard, we said the sea doesn't care about you. And uh, you have to accept that. The only way to get to where you want to go is to, is to suffer. But you also have to be kind to yourself and to understand that those feelings of anxiety and listlessness and that the odds are stacked against you and being distracted and having a hard time concentrating and that anxiety cycle and that depression cycle, that those experiences are universal. And all of your literary heroes, be, they, be it George R. R. Martin or Neil Gaiman or, or uh, Brent Weeks or Peter Brent or, or Naomi Novik or whoever it is that you're looking up to, I promise you, <laughs> um, they're feeling it. Oh, uh, let me share one story with the readers. Is that okay? Please, absolutely. Um, okay, okay. So this is an analogy for writing, I promise. I used to go to a climbing gym in D.C. back in my spy days, and uh, there was a guy there who had been an EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Technician Marine Corps, and he had been blown up. And he had lost his left arm below the elbow, and he, his body, his, he had lost his left eye and a glass eye, and his body was a, a network of scars. He looked like, um, uh, you know, the thing from Fantastic Four, just lines across his whole body, right? Wow. So he, he, he was really disfigured and damaged from the, from the uh, explosion. And he was the most upbeat, happy jokester I've ever met in my life. He had rigged a uh, prosthetic limb to replace the missing arm as a climbing axe. And he climbed using uh, this arm. Oh, wow. and, he, and he was a delight. And he, he, his social calendar was full all the time because he was so much fun. And he um, was a womanizer because women just, they loved his sense of humor and they loved his confidence. And he just... You would never, you would expect that kind of, of injuries, that, that those degree of injuries to really uh, impact his life, and, and it, it didn't seem to do it all, at all. In fact, he seemed to be further ahead than the rest of us. <laughs> so one day we're sitting there uh, looking at a climbing problem and uh, talking, and I said, you know, I, I just want to say, man, uh, you amaze me that you're so happy and you're laughing all the time and you're so upbeat. If I had your injuries... I would be so angry and so bitter and so because, you know, you weren't doing anything wrong. You were just 
you know, doing your job and this happened to you and you're a good person. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, uh, Mike, he said, uh, what do you think I'm like this all the time? He said, <laughs> he said, I have bad days. I have days when I'm bitter and angry, but you don't see them because we're in a public place and I don't know you that well. You know, like, you know, come, come hang out at my house, like hide in my closet and spy on me at 11 <laughs> o'clock at night on a Sunday and you'll see, you know. And I was so awestruck by that because I had never, I mean, it's so obvious, but it's one of those obvious things you don't think of. And the same is true for writers, is that you're going to look at Robin Hobb and you're going to look at, uh, you know, Mark Lawrence and Joe Abercrombie and think these guys never have a day down in their lives. They're so happy and upbeat. They're so successful. But the truth is, just like this guy from the climbing gym, you don't see them, you know, on Sunday nights or whatever when they're home alone. And, sure. and if that gives you comfort, if you could draw strength from knowing that this experience that you're having is universal, then I hope that um, it provides some comfort to you. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And and I'm just as as we talk about this, as we explore this, this this notion of, you know, uh, fraud syndrome of of do, do you feel like your past successes uh, are actually almost as much of a goal, a goad as they are a, a, a support and a foundation upon which to build on? Are your past successes like looming over? It's like, oh crap, you've got to be as good as your last thing or better or you suck, man. Yeah, of course, especially branching out into new fields, right? So <laughs> yeah. These, these next three books, well, yeah, first of all, so I'm going to be on TV now. And I'll never forget, um, you know, uh, I people spend... 30 years of their life in LA trying to get on TV and don't, right? Yeah. So who the fuck am I? Who the fuck am I to just go waltzing into the middle of a primetime TV show, you know, with the most covered in slot uh, on network TV, right? I mean, who the hell am I? Of course people are looking at me to screw that up. And then when I was on the show, I'm surrounded by these people who are the best at what they do, the best fugitive hunters. Lenny DePaul was the head of operations, was a was a commander of the U.S. Marshals who did nothing but fugitive recovery for 20 years. This guy forgot more about how to find people than I'll, than I'll ever know. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm supposed to stand there like I'm this guy's peer. Um, and now I'm writing medieval fantasy, dark fantasy, uh, that is not military. The thing with my original series is that, you know, nobody had really done what I was doing before, this kind of hyper-modern, squad-based, you know. I mean, certainly military fantasy was not new. But nobody had done my particular spin on it. Sure. But this, but now, but now I am stepping into Joe Abercrombie and Mark Lawrence and Scott Lynch and Peter Brett's, you know, uh, arena, and and putting my work up. And who the hell am I to do that? And uh, yeah, I'm totally terrified. And the thing I always say is that um, uh, every novel is your debut. Every time I sit down to write a book. My immediate experience is, ah, I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, like, um, and you would think it gets easier, and it absolutely doesn't. So, yes, it absolutely is a go. And I do feel that I have to level up. And I do feel that the bar is raised every time I, I have a book that does well. And um, Pat Rothfuss wrote an amazing blog post once where he had like this um, stress-related uh, Ill, uh, Ill, Ill response when he was writing a book and the last thing he felt before he passed out was, uh, oh, thank God, maybe I don't have to turn the book in. <laughs> um, if that's happening to Pat Rothfuss, who I, I, I think we can all admit is, is you know, up there with maybe Brandon Sanderson and George R. R. Martin as a real literary celebrity. Oh my, yes. Yeah, so 
then you're damn right it's happening to me. (laughs) And it's okay Uh, if it happens to you, dear friends. Uh, That's right. I've always said as an actor, uh, uh, if you're not scared when you go on stage, you don't care enough. You're not doing it right. There needs to yeah, be a sure. little terror, otherwise your 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 commitment is in question at that point. Yes, yes, yeah. I totally. So I totally so, agree. and I know you've answered this many many times before, but in 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 light of this recent flow of conversation, why are you branching into a completely different, utterly new uh, uh, arena of fiction, grim dark medieval fantasy, which? albeit is certainly in the wheelhouse of every nerd and geek uh, uh, that that has ever loved Tolkien or loved uh, uh, that vibe. Why are you making that step now? Um, Because, well, first of all, because this is the first time I got someone to... uh Buy it <laughs> to say yes. Keep in mind, the Fracture Girl was three years in the making. You know, before I could finally get a publisher to to, to bite on it. Um, I uh, here's the thing: is that it's super, super important to me to prove to myself. It's nice to prove it to other people, but it's most important to prove it to myself that I'm not a one trick pony. When I when when the Shadow Ops, uh, when both of the Shadow Ops trilogies are praised, they're usually praised for the authentic military voice. And, you know, people focus in interviews on my military background and military this and military that. Even my role on this TV show is really about my past experience in the intelligence services and in the military. So, um, and that's great. And I'll take it. And look, I'll write military books as long as people will pay me to write military books. As we speak, I have another um, trilogy proposal circulating with publishers uh, to pick up where Brief Zone left off. Um, uh, So I'm willing to, to go back to that well. But... I need to prove to myself that I'm a writer with a capital W. I want to be like Jim Butcher, who built a career on the Dresden Files and then turned around and wrote Codex Alera, which couldn't be more different, and was successful there too. I want to be like Isaac Asimov, who wrote books of history and books of science and, uh, and, and, and couldn't be pigeonholed. I want to be like Ray Bradbury in that respect. And, um, and I want to be that way not necessarily because it's a commercially smarter move to diversify, although it is, but because I want to prove to myself that I have range and that, and that my success as a writer is due to my craft as a writer and not to the gimmickry inherent in my military experience. When you love something, you want to be worthy of that love. And now yeah. you, and you get to step out and now I'm going to prove to you nerddom and geekdom and fantasy literature that I love so much that I am worthy of being a part of your voice because not only can I do this, but I'm also doing this. And hopefully history too, uh, soon. Not yes, history, yes. Which, uh, which is awesome. And I can't tell you like, so there's this history writer, James Rom, who he doesn't know me from a fucking hole in the wall. This guy is a, a, a classics professor at Bard, and he's written two books, Ghost on the Throne and Dying Every Day, which are about, um, one is about the succession crisis after the death of Alexander the Great, and the other is about Seneca at the court of Nero. And they're just amazing books. And how friggin' cool is it going to be to be able to send this guy an email <laughs> and say, hey man, you've been a huge influence. I just had my first history book deal. Can I send you a copy? Um, just as a gift to say thank you for for how much of an inspiration you've been to me. Yeah. I remember doing that when I got my first fiction book deal. And, yeah. and uh, uh, I mean, it, it's sublime just thinking about it. So yeah, um, I yeah. definitely want to be worthy of the art. 
Well, I, I think you're well on the road. Dude, we are so out of time. Um, <laughs> no, it's not your fault, dude. This has been fabulous. And I'm, I'm actually, because it's my podcast, I'm going to rock it for one more, just a point. Maybe not a question, but a point. Because sure. I remember, I forget if it was in your first or second appearance on the show, we were talking about characters. And, and you had said... And I remember very, I don't remember the specific words, but I remember the instance where you were saying, you know, people talk about their characters doing shit on their own and my characters don't do anything. I put them up on stage. They just sit there waiting for me to tell them something. And then I read your January 15th interview with CD Dragons and you talked about Sarah and her canvas knife. Yes. (laughs) A character came to life in your brain. Well, I mean, look, man, uh, that was the first time in my life, uh, 43 years, that I've ever been wrong about anything. Um, <laughs> it was just as much of a shock to me. To be wrong. But uh, no, no, I mean, it's, it's true. Uh, and I will say, for the most part, it's still like you're saying. Um, but the truth is this, that uh, maybe that was a sign of me not knowing my characters well enough and uh, maybe needing to put more work into it and a sign that uh, you're never done improving. You know, that's an interesting point. I hadn't considered that. And you are a very thorough, uh, and friends, if you don't know, there is nothing pantser about Master Cole. Uh, his outlines are longer than many of your manuscripts. Uh, <laughs> so he knows his characters inside and out. So I, I, that is an interesting point. I hadn't considered that. But maybe because you know your characters so well and so intimately, before you get down to dialogue and, and writing of the scenes, that it, in, in this particular case, case anyway you hadn't maybe explored every nook and cranny of of sarah's personality and motivations yeah Yeah, and i'm I'm the same way that anybody is i'm prone to rushing right i want to get to the fun exciting part (laughs) seeing a book in in print sending it off to the editor right i don't want to do the foundational work some of which never even makes it to the page um and uh of course i miss details i rush uh I, i certainly am not superman in that way so yeah, um, you're never you're never done uh, having to improve on stuff like that. There you go. There you go. Good advice. Good advice. All right. Uh, uh, the the clock has actually transformed itself into a goblin shaman uh, uh, wielding magics of a fell nature uh, in my general direction, uh, which I know we're way out of time and way over the line, uh, but I have no regrets. No regrets at all. Uh, yeah. Mike, this has been fabulous, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Man. Oh, dude, always. And we gotta we gotta make sure it's not three years before we have you back again. Yeah, for uh, sure. So, friends, the deal is as it always is that uh, uh, that was awesome. Your head is full, I'm sure. Uh, you've been inspired. Our work is done here, but it's not because come back in seven days and we'll have Mike back. I'll be back and we'll add to the mix a, a guest writer, a courageous guest writer, creative and courageous, uh, uh, aspiring. Wordsmith who will throw down a story pitch that will spark uh, a brainstorm of epic proportions. It's going to be fabulous. And it's seven days. I know it's a long damn time. So here's the thing. Between now and seven days from now, as Brian Humphrey used to say, go write. 
Or as Mike Cole would say, do the fucking work. Do it now. Get it written down. Put your stories in the world. That's where they do the most good. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the holy crap. Look for the amazing shit in the world. And I swear to you, friends, if you look for it, your keen eyes will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, you stay frothy, and you stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.